Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for today, Thursday, March 31st, 2022. I am Noah Rothman. With us, as always, is Commentary Senior Editor Abe Greenwald. I'm sorry, Executive Editor. Executive Editor. Hi, Noah. Hi, Abe. Uh, Senior Writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, Noah. John Podhoritz is out today, but with us in his place is the incomparable Eli Lake. Mr. Lake, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So yesterday we can, we you know stepped away from the, the news and the headlines to talk about uh, broader issues in a 30,000 foot perspective with uh, Yuval Levin. But we got to get a little bit back into the headlines today and at least talk a little bit about the news from the front lines in the war in Ukraine. Um, some interesting developments over the last 24, 48 hours as we have seen Ukrainian advances and counterattacks beginning to bite. There's a lot of information coming out of Ukrainian ministries, um, which you should take with a grain of salt. But when we see reporters, Western reporters on the ground in areas that were once occupied by Russian forces, particularly around Kiev, you have to uh, accept the reality of the fact that Russia is pulling back from some of the territorial gains it made very early in the war, particularly uh, in one uh, one airport outside of uh, Kiev, Hostomel Airport, which has been retaken by Ukrainian forces. This was objective number one of the initial Russian invasion. Their, their first uh, blitz into Ukraine involved an air assault on this airport, presumably with the intention of taking it and using it as a point of resupply for the sacking of Kiev within the first uh, week, I guess, probably a little less, but week of uh, the offensive. That clearly did not happen. Um, but this is indicative of some real evidence that Russia is pulling back. Now, we don't have any indication, at least not according to the Ministry of, of Defense in the United Kingdom, the Defense Department or NATO, that Russia is honest and serious when it says it's pulling back from the northern front, the northwestern front, in order to focus almost exclusively on uh, maintaining and holding gains in the eastern part of the country around Donetsk and Lugansk, but they are clearly pulling back and they're clearly preparing for counteroffensives in and around places like Kyrgyzstan, which is one of the largest cities that had fallen to Russian troops. Uh, evidence suggests, according to satellite imagery that we get from all open sources, that uh, Russian forces are preparing to pull back around the airport. Um, in Kyrgyzstan in preparation for a real legitimate counteroffensive, a mechanized uh, counteroffensive by Ukrainian forces. We are looking at a very significant rollback of the gains that Russia made early on in this war. Abe, briefly, what do you make of this? Well, um, I, I, I remain ever cautious about uh, being enthusiastic here because I'm still suffering under the fear that there's somehow more to come. Um, maybe there's 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 sort of something up his up, up Putin's sleeve that's not reflected in the sort of raw numbers that we're seeing now. And I, I really want to get your thoughts and and Eli's thoughts on this. I was I was particularly haunted by an excellent column yesterday by our friend Brett Stevens in the New York Times, um, who posed the question: What if Putin didn't make a mistake here at all? What if the reading uh, of the invasion that he that Putin wanted uh, all of Ukraine 
uh, and is, has failed in that effort, what if that reading's wrong? What if ultimately what he wanted was merely the energy-rich sectors um, that, that he will now try to get by punishing the Ukrainian population and just make that eventually look like a, a sort of concession? Well, it's a very interesting theory. Eli, I want to get your opinion on that one because this is more your bailiwick. Well, I like I, I really liked uh, Brett's column a lot um, because in general, we have seen this tendency, which is uh, somewhat baffling, where there have been some things that the West has gotten right, such as its unity, um, the swiftness of the sanctions and some of the some of the responses initially from like a month ago, which were generally positive. But we have in, at least in the U.S. and the sort of media that is so helpful to the Democratic Party's narrative, that section of the, the, the DC-based media, there has been a tendency of like sort of trying to spin this narrative as like, well, you know, Biden's really shown this great leadership and it's been so brilliant. And this was kind of congratulating the Biden administration for innovative tactics like declassifying the intelligence where, which in the end failed to deter the invasion, which was the point of this. And then for the president to gaslight us a few days ago in response to that question saying, of course, you know, we never intended to uh, deter the invasion. That's not how these sanctions work, which just make any sense. So it's important to have this kind of somewhat pessimistic view that, um, you know, it's possible that the initial idea that you were going to do a kind of complete invasion with regime change, uh, you know, if, if he doesn't get that then, and still manages to control the most energy rich parts of Ukraine and kind of what, what Brett correctly calls a heist. Well, that's really bad too. And, and do we have a plan to try to, to, to foil that? That's all very important. But I mean, the most chilling part of Brett's analysis, and I want to just quote him here is what if the conventional wisdom is wrong? What if the West is only playing into Putin's hands once again, which is to say uh, where he says another part of the column, which is that it's not that the Russians can't, win it's that they can't win clean so we've already we know that the russians we know going back to the 90s with cam the campaign in grozny in the early 2000s that they're the russians are willing to just destroy cities and kill lots of civilians in order to accomplish military objectives that no western military would do would would consider so if that is the case and that's what we have to sort of prepare for then you know as 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 uh, as hopeful as it is to sort of think about how the Ukrainians have been underestimated by everybody, including the United States, we have to also prepare for the fact that we've got, you know, an adversary that is not going to be constrained by any kind of consideration for civilian casualties or something like that. And in some ways we've already seen it and we have to kind of prepare for the worst. And I'm concerned that we're not hearing anything concrete that looks like a strategy from the Biden administration about how they're going to respond to that if he ups the ante with either using a chemical weapon, potentially a tactical nuke, or more of what we're seeing in places like Mariupol. Imagine if he does that, you know, to Kiev. So that is uh, a serious thing. And I, and I haven't seen sort of like, what is the plan? And part of that is because the escalation ladder for the West are all sanctions and diplomatic isolation. And we still haven't thought about, well, what's the trigger for us to become more military engaged? So I think at this point, you know, I think the, I think Europe, I think, if, I think if the United States decided to sort of join the war in terms of a no-fly zone or something like that, then it really would be a military defeat for the Russian mil army at, 
But if it's possible that we could sort of see this and the success of Ukrainian counterattacks and everything like that, but you know, we end up in a scenario where uh, Putin steals lots of the energy rich parts of the country and uh, kills lots more civilians because he can. And, you know, without without a bigger military force stepping in, no one will stop him. Well, he has I, he has the coastline right now, too. And I think yeah. he, there's something else he announced. Re, Putin just announced that he wants everyone to pay for Russian gas in rubles now. Right. So there, there's a, the, also the fact that he can kind of hold Europe hostage in terms of energy needs as well. It's not just how the U.S. might. Well, respond, the Europeans, but, as, yeah. as, as Noah just pointed out in a fine piece for the website, that to their great credit, they didn't, they did not, they, they kind of called us bluff on that. Right. So that exactly. Was, that's good. That kind of unity is excellent. I mean, and this yeah, I, maybe I, is a great transition into the, to the, to the oil reserve question, because that's got to be part of our strategy at this point. Well, this the Western, that, the, the deposit that they're sitting on in the West is an unexploited shale deposit, right? We're not talking about crude oil. We're talking about frackable shale, which takes about 20 years to bring to market if you're lucky, which is part of the reason why Ukraine hasn't brought it to market. We'd actually tried to trans transport uh, some hydraulic fracturing technology over there in the earlier part of the last decade to no avail. There is no universe in which Moscow set out on this campaign only to capture Eastern Ukraine. No way in, in, in any conceivable world was a feint directed towards Kiev that produced 10,000 casualties estimated, according to Western intelligence, some 40,000 wounded out of action, a high number of defections, according to UK intelligence, members of the Russian military turning on their own commanders, abandoning their own equipment, fle fleeing the field. And how, who knows how many heavy uh, equipment, how much heavy equipment, long range artillery, aircraft, unmanned aircraft have been downed as a result of this campaign in what is still presently contested airspace. There's no way the initial objective was Eastern Ukraine. Now, maybe that's a secondary objective. In fact, they're trying to suggest that that's their secondary objective and they want to consolidate those gains. But we're only seeing right now rollback. Now, will, will as, as, as Brett says, does victory look like, okay, a semi-frozen conflict and a much larger portion of Ukraine that is occupied by Russia and, and Ukraine becomes a welfare case that's just dropped on the West's doorstep? Well, in many ways, that was a status quo ante between 2014 and 2022. So we are looking at essentially a rollback to February 24th lines. That is essentially the stat, that is the victory conditions established by Kyiv. And if that is a victory condition, and it's also a victory condition for Moscow, then we have the de-escalation. We have the point of de-escalation to the point where we can actually agree on uh, a, a way to stop the fighting and, and consolidate those gains. I'm very skeptical of the notion that this is anything other than improvisatory at this point. Uh, by Moscow. Every indication suggests they really genuinely believed they could take over the country, knock out the government, install a puppet, and drive all the way to the Hungarian-Slovakian border um, within the space of a week, two weeks. So I, I, I don't think that this was the plan all along. Doesn't Yeah, doesn't I, I, well, I agree with that. But, but again, you know, I mean, there is a key difference, though. I mean, this kind of gets to this whole thing that was, you know, a big deal a few days ago which is, you know, Biden's remarks in Europe about, you know, God, I mean, how could he continue to run the country and whether that was a regime change policy and the whole freak out over that. But in a sense, we should, we should be straight with ourselves. I mean, is there any scenario where we could imagine that the Russians would be invited back into the community of nations and Vladimir Putin was still in power? Yes. I don't think that's possible. I, do. I hope it's not possible. Okay. 
but we ought to be honest. We ought to be kind of clear about that, that there's at this point, there's really no going back and there shouldn't be any going back. And that that should be kind of a constant incentive for people around Putin to get rid of him. I mean, I'm not arguing it's an incentive in Russian elections, which don't matter. I'm arguing that that that's the, 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 the strategy behind the way that the, the, the West is targeting oligarchs right now is that they're not doing every oligarch at once. They're kind of doing a little bit at a time because they want to create the uncertainty that would maybe get some of these kind of players to, to, to switch sides. And that's the point. So I, I was concerned that we have this such an inordinate fear of regime change as a concept when we're not talking about a CIA plot to assassinate him. We're not talking about invading Russia like it was the Iraq war. Obviously, none of that's that's not what it is. But is the goal that ultimately Putin like loses power and that would be a great deterrent for other despots in the world not to do this kind of thing in the future? A hundred percent. And so that's where I think that it has to be some clarity with regards to the sanctions themselves. And if there is some sort of status quo plus for the Russians, which is that they get to keep more territory and keep this kind of frozen conflict going, then we should be very clear that that's, that is not going to let Russia back into the you know, group of normal countries. That's not going to be enough to stop all the sanctions and also the long range planning that we hope Europe is doing to become more energy independent. See, I, I, I agree with you entirely, Eli, but I, I agree with Noah in that I think it sadly is possible. That the, that there oh, is okay. Going is it possible because the because the Biden administration will yes. screw it up hundred percent? But Moscow is a member in good don't. standing of the Community of Nations right now in Vienna. Well, yeah, that is. Well, I, I agree. Right. Point that and, out, and, and the Biden administration wants that to continue very, very badly, desperately. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not even entirely sure that there's no way that this that that this was an invasion to to get the 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 one oil rich sector of Ukraine, because I, I don't necessarily believe that Putin cares about the losses uh, to the extent that he knows about them, you know, as, as Noah pointed out in his piece on the on the website today. Um, uh, Putin is hearing all sorts of um, fantastical garbage and nonsense from from the, the higher ups in the, in the Russian military and, and elsewhere. Um, I will say this, though. I mean, I think another way to look at uh, Brett's statement about uh, Putin might not win clean is that um, he might not lose clean. And I think that's sort yeah. of the, the, the pressing, scary, or more likely um, thing to worry about is that what I so highly doubt we're going to see is sort of full retrenchment of Russian troops and restoration of, uh, of Ukraine as it, as it was three months ago. Um, and that's, that's what sort of scares me and haunts me. And also, you know, Putin's popularity has, has at home has increased since this. Do we so, know that? I mean, can we well, that's According to that. uh, Lada, I believe is the polling outfit. I mean, that's domestic polling. I don't but believe domestic polling. polling in Russia at this point. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I wouldn't believe it if it went down or up. I just don't know that that's going to tell us anything. There's such an, the, 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 the climate of fear in Russia right now is such that I just can't imagine that you're going to be getting straight answers from people when they ask. Well, regardless if it's legitimate polling or a climate of fear, the outcome is predetermined that you're not going to see 
a, right. you know, a repeat of the siege of the Winter Palace here. It's not going to be a popular revolution okay, or even anything like what we saw in 2015. But that's not my scenario, as much as it would be great to have, you know, it would be wonderful if Putin was toppled by a people power movement. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that the military, he may personally not care about all of the losses of his soldiers. He may personally not care about the military humiliation, but the military cares a lot about that. And one of the ways even a despot like Putin can stay in power is that he has to keep certain kinds of power centers, starting with the military and his internal security services, happy. So if you have a bunch of people who think that, that Putin sent them on a fool's errand and, uh, and, and, and basically sent, sent, you know, sent their, their boys into a meat grinder, well, that, can, that kind of resentment can build up and lead to not the kind of regime change I would like, like a velvet revolution, but it can certainly lead to a coup. We've seen it before, and I'm not saying it's going to happen because there's no way anybody would have enough information to predict it. But that's the sort of scenario that we have to look at with all the pressure that we're putting on all of the other pillars of the regime, from the oligarchs to the military, et cetera, et cetera. So in that respect, I do think that he, I, I would imagine that Putin's probably savvy enough to understand that that's going to be a problem for him. And uh, it's not just the military performed poorly. The military is in the process potentially of breaking. And he's that's not a, a strategy. Yeah, he, but he, this is, and this is the thing, like he's not a military strategist. He comes out of basically the yeah. you know, KGB and the, the KGB people always thought they were more uh, strategic than the military. The military was the blunt tool that only was brought into use if the KGB types didn't do what they were supposed to do. And you see that in, I mean, you can sense a bit of that in terms of how he has dealt with his uh, military leaders. And I, I, I would assume he sees them as fairly interchangeable and disposable. I mean, they certainly have uh, been treated that way in the, in this conflict, you know, it's like oh, this general said, okay, we'll make this guy a general. I mean, it's it's you know, and and to to Noah's point from a few weeks ago about how we we should never have abandoned Kremlinology. I mean, there's a sense in which during the Cold War, we actually, I mean, I remember as a kid knowing some of the names of Russian generals. I don't know how, right. but somehow that sort of it was the Russian military that we feared, and it's it's different under Putin. It's just I, I don't know quite I how agree to describe with you it, that but. he comes from a different tradition and he doesn't have. He doesn't have that same, he doesn't care in that sense institutionally. What I'm saying is he's also the leader of Russia. And right. if you're the leader of Russia, you have to at a certain point care if your top generals are seething in yeah. rage at your incompetence. And the fact that you've, I mean, I think the story is the opposite of what is coming out in the Russian press right now, that he was getting bad strategic advice. I think it's, he ignored any warnings he might have gotten. You remember that opening meeting with his cabinet and there was that one i think intelligence chief who's was a little bit on the fence and then had to repeat okay it's fine it's a great idea who well, looked terrified by the way ter when exactly <laughs> well you know i you got to be thinking a lot of people you know kind of muttering under their breath right now and you know between their friends and colleagues are like wow the, the, the old man's lost it and I can't believe he would be so, uh, you know, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I know that Putin doesn't care about the lives of his soldiers, but I, I think the generals do. I think his defense chief does. Who may or may not be sidelined. Yeah, well, <laughs> right, who's very corrupt. <laughs> right, both of whom sort of are maybe, yeah. maybe not, you know, in the public eye right now, um, which suggests maybe that he does, that Putin does have a healthy mistrust of his security apparatus, but also that he's got plenty of other people in the wings that he can rely on. And can I, I also mean, he just, could just purge, you know, that's, right. there's, that's there's, right. We've also there's nothing not in, 
in the in the history there that would suggest that that's precisely what he did. And we've heard there's, something there's to that effect also, about FSB generals as well. There's I just want to add for our listeners that there's a great book I'm reading, which I would recommend in terms of trying to understand the information environment right now called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And it's all about kind of 21st century Russia. Just you get us. It's literally for the citizen, just the average citizen who might be trying to understand what is going on in his or her country and what they're doing to another country. It's like living in a hall of mirrors. And it's kind of a fascinating look at, at a lot of that information environment and things that have changed culturally for the Russians in the 21st century. Okay, moving on from the news from the front to our response to the proxy war that we are conducting in Ukraine against Russia. That's exactly what it is. We should call it as such. Um, The Biden administration is taking an extraordinary step today to ease some of the collateral pressures that this war is putting on American pocketbooks uh, with the extraordinary news that he will plan on releasing no less than one million barrels per day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for 180 days moving forward. That uh, would account for roughly 5% of US demand. It also accounts for about 30% of the stockpile. We have about 600 million barrels of oil in the stockpile. And that meets American demand for approximately one month, assuming we had no production whatsoever, no imports whatsoever. Um, So, but it's more than that in this very extraordinary executive order Uh, designed to shield Americans from the consequences of this war. Um, He is implementing, according to the White House, a use it or lose it policy uh, for leases, gas and oil leases that are unused. Now, this is a talking point that the White House has trotted out quite frequently. They spent the last, they spent the campaign and the first year in office demonstrating how green they were, how opposed to petroleum technology and exploitation and and marketing they were uh, for fossil fuels. And since the war erupted, now all of a sudden, the Biden administration is the most pro-fossil fuel administration we've ever had. And uh, Jen Psaki, a, a notable- Except they're not. Of course not. They've been trying right. to suggest that, well, there's, I think it's 9,000 unused leases that these oil companies are just sitting on, and it's their fault. And the fact that they're just sitting on it, well, that's going to have to end, right? Um, this is- uh, real misdirection. It's a political ploy and it's deeply cynical. You have to know nothing about how this market works before you know that, first of all, getting a lease to a piece of property doesn't mean that there's anything to exploit under it. You have to do a ton of research into that property. And when you do the research, then you find something to exploit. Then you have to get the surface agreements and the permits to actually exploit it. Then you have to build a pipeline to move it So you're talking about 10, 15, 20 years before you lease something and then bring it to market. Not everything you lease is going to be active. Moreover, a lot of these energy companies like to have a deep inventory. So when a particular well dries up or becomes unproductive or unprofitable, then you can exploit elsewhere. So they do sit on some land as a means of back, back, uh, making sure that they have a, a reserve, a strategic reserve that they can draw from. So they're not in any sort of financial trouble in the event that they come, you know, encounter an unforeseen event. And right now there are more leases active in this country, active as in being exploited than at any point in the last 20 years. So all this process would do if you did this use it or lose it situation would be to put more, um, put more anxiety into this marketplace, make this marketplace potentially less profitable and scare off exactly what they need right now, which is speculative investment in these uh, properties and these wells. And one easy way for you to do that would be to revoke 
all the federal um, and executive uh, actions pertaining to the exploration and exploitation of fossil fuels in this country that are still active. This administration started with Dave, Keystone XL. All the pipelines that have not yeah. and Keystone XL just sent a signal to every pip pipeline manufacturer out there that they're not going to get their pipelines approved. So not only did Keystone, after 10 years languishing in limbo, just somehow be uh, just was shut down, all the other pipelines that are waiting on that signal are also not moving forward as a result of this and the, and the Obama administration, uh, you know, over 10 years now, sending signals to pipelines that you know, you're not going to come online. Um, the uh, halting of leases on federal land, um, making sure that executive agencies can't spend in ways that possibly subsidize fossil fuel producers. All of this has a negative impact on the oil market, which is a futures market. They say, you know, well, if we got rid of all that, it wouldn't have an effect on the price of oil. Yes, it would because the price of oil is a futures market. It's based on what's coming online in 10 years, in 20 years, not what the price of oil is today. So this is all smoke and mirrors uh, with a political objective in mind, not necessarily American strategic objectives and certainly not your personal pocketbooks when they're, when they're doing this as well. And also the administration, of course, bowing to their progressives in their coalition is invoking the Defense Production Act to transition to clean energy by forcing the economy and, and uh, producers of manufacturers of green technologies to, um, to ramp up production in, in ways that I don't quite understand how this is going to work because it's all fictional anyway. But this is, uh, this is their plan. The Biden administration's stunts, and this is a stunt, die on the spot. That is the thing. No one cares. No one bought the Putin price hike. Uh, he didn't get a bump from a bounce from from free COVID tests, you know, like they 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 they're there's a real sort of poverty of imagination when it if you if you want to just be purely political, they're they're bad at it. This but is yet another premise countdown. I'm gonna steal from you, Ed. This but that they had Take 180 it. days to stop the spread of gas prices or something. Like there's always a day count to it's like hundred days till this, two weeks for that. No, it's <laughs> it's and Pelosi is arguing against her own side. I mean, the thing is they're actually, and, and this goes to the Dems and Disarray thing we love to harp on, but the, the Democratic leadership isn't isn't falling in line with what Biden is messaging about gas prices because they don't, you know, they've got a progressive wing that doesn't want to see another drop of oil consumed in this country, you know, for the rest of time. So the, it, it the little the little salve with the electric vehicles is kind of funny, but it's not going to satisfy their progressive wing at all. Can, can I make it a, a just a, a sort of observation about like all of this that I think kind of ties it together? If you look at the Democrats in the last five years, they have turned things that were not necessarily crises or emergencies, and they have addressed them like they are massive crises. The classic one is, of course, climate change, that we have to treat this as the most important pressing problem. But also the Trump presidency is the same kind of thing. And that when you kind Income of inequality your, or right, or exactly, which is a permanent state of relativity. Right. When you whip yourself up into saying this is a crisis and we have to suspend certain kind of, you know, rules and, and, and norms that we would normally observe because we have to address this acute problem, whether it's the Trump presidency or climate change or whatever it is. And then you're faced with a real crisis at an emergency, a real hot war that's affecting global energy markets and all of these other things. It's really difficult to make the adjustment now that you've got a real crisis as opposed to one that you've sort of whipped up in order to justify 
your norm violations uh, to kind of get what you want. And that's what they're dealing with because they've been telling themselves now for a decade that climate change is the biggest thing that anybody has to deal with. It's the most important emergency. And I'm not arguing that climate change isn't important, but now that they've got this other thing that's like not only a political crisis for them, but a huge problem for like Americans that have to deal with rising oil prices, they don't know what to do. And so that's why they're in this mode of having to do these kinds of stunts and you know easily punctured narratives because they, they don't know how to adjust to something when they actually have it. And that's why it's so important to, you know, only say, only react to something as if it's a crisis, unless it's a really a crisis, unless it's really an emergency, because if not, then you find yourself, you know, sort of out of, you know, policy options and out of solutions when you are faced with the real thing. There appears to have been a genuine sentiment abroad in the progressive movement, especially progressives in Congress, that the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan would somehow yield a peace dividend that would allow us to reduce the defense budget. We spent a billion dollars a year, right? It was something very minimal. The contingency operations in in Afghanistan was like a billion, two billion, three billion dollars a year. It was nothing, nothing compared to what our, our defense budget is and what we were actually spending over there. They, I don't know what they were thinking. And now they're very depressed by the fact that, well, actually history has returned and we do kind of have to focus on great power contingencies and and not uh, counterinsurgency operations as our primary uh, war planning focus. And by the way, that's why we have the inexplicable decision to pursue the nuclear deal that is brokered by Russia while claiming that Putin's a pariah and we're going to isolate Russia as long as they're in the middle of this aggressive war with Ukraine doesn't make any sense at all it's it, and at this point it's such a bad deal that even you know rob malley's staffers and people who were working on it have left you know because they just can't imagine that we we're going to get anything worth uh anything like that but they're so committed to the to restoring the jcpoa at that they're kind of incapable of making what is an obvious the, the obviously right decision at this point that there's nothing there really to get and that we have to come up with a new strategy and it's the same kind of thing. It's the same with this energy stuff because they're just, they've talked themselves into the crisis of climate change, but they kind of can't get out of it when they're faced with the crisis of the, of, of the war in Ukraine. But it's really interesting, isn't it? That there's a, there's a similar strategy that's used, that's been used here and used badly in terms of what voters response to it is. And that's, I, I was reading about how, you know, yesterday uh, Biden went and met with a couple of different caucuses among the Democrats to talk about the upcoming midterms, you know, with the progressives, you know, the more moderate groups. The progressives message is, well, we know all these things. Well, actually, it wasn't an acknowledgement of their unpopularity, but it's like, well, we can't get anything passed in Congress. Our agenda is so important that we need you to bypass using, you know, the uh, what the Constitution tells us to do. And instead, you just issue executive orders about, you know, forgive all student loan debt, you know, declare this climate emergency. Do I mean, just all the crazy pie in the sky stuff that we know voters are, are very loudly rejecting right now. They're sending all the flares up saying, nope, nope, don't want this. The response is still as it was today when Biden announced this, you know, we've all got this Defense Authorization Act to do electric vehicles. It's like, I'm just going to sign this into law and it's going to manifest. I mean, it's like what reading a really bad political version of the secret. It's like, I will manifest <laughs> my vision for, you know, better energy. And the voters are like, this sucks. Gas is seven bucks a gallon. So 
but they they don't the moderates are still there trying desperately to find a path forward and i i feel sort of bad for them because there's no way forward as long as biden continues to indulge even a few of the wins of his progressive caucus i, I love to- i just want to say i love eli's point about the fake crises because what happens is now you so you the administration's mo has been um shaped by these fake crises and the thing is with a fake crisis, all you have to throw at it is a fake solution, mm-hmm. and then you're done. And so they're still doing, you know. So if, if to stay with climate change, we go, oh well, we're going to get back into the Paris Accords. Matters not at all to them that that you know countries that sign on to the Paris Accords have worse CO two records than 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 you know the ones who that, that don't, or some of the ones that don't, you know. But it's the fake. It's the fake, or 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 you say the the Green New Deal, that's our solution. Can't pa- can't happen, but but there there there's your fake solution for the fake problem. Um, Christine mentioned Democrats in disarray, and I wanted to pivot to something that I read in Politico about the polling, I, because obviously Democrats are in disarray, or you'd be hearing Democrats are in disarray. Democrats are in disarray is a phrase that you hear only ironically when Democrats are in peak condition and Republicans are at war with themselves, when they're in disarray, you never hear the word disarray, God God save us. Um, but the Politico this morning has a piece on the enthusiasm gap in polling, which dramatically favors Republicans and seems to be favoring Republicans even more with ever with each you know new poll that's released. And at the bottom of this piece, there's a piece of, I'll call it polling analysis um, from a former Democratic fundraiser and founder of the National Democratic Training Committee, Kelly Dietrich. Um, And warning to all you listeners who don't appreciate foul language, this is a direct quote, you have been warned. So the polls uh, tell her the following. God damn it, man, it is so infuriating. It is easier to tear shit down than it is to build shit up. It's much easier to frame people who are actively trying to build and accomplish things as failing and incompetent so you can provide an alternative solution. What I'm seeing and from talking to people is a little bit of this exasperation. We are trying to do the right things here, but our society has gone batshit. Um, it's palpable exasperation on her part, his part, I'm sorry. Uh, and he's right to be frustrated. I would be too. Republicans don't have to do anything right now to benefit from the political headwinds that Democrats are uh, are suffering with other than just being not that. They just have to be against that. They have to be against the Green New Deal. They have to be against Build Back Better. They have to be against whatever other Joe Biden initiative he's he's gotten us into. And even though they're, they're, they're frustrated by the lack of any sort of rally around the flag effect for Joe Biden, as though we're in a war, we're not in a war. We're in a terrible, precarious position that he's gotten us into and expects to be rewarded for it. So, yeah, as a Democratic pollster, you would be very discouraged by the fact that Republicans simply have to exist as an alternative to Democrats in their nebulous, shapeless form and will still reap the the benefits of just being not that. But the problem is the fact that you're that. But that the thing that's interesting to me about uh, what that quote captured perfectly, and I did love how you channeled the 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 exasperated energy of what, what you Thank read you. on the page because you I, I now hear it in the voice that you just used, is that there it's the same problem Biden has continually had with his message. 
it's not great to tell your voters they're too stupid to understand the good things you're doing for them. And the message is kind of like, you're, we're so disappointed in you. Don't you see how great things are that we're trying to do for you? How dare you, you know, raise questions or push back on that or say, actually, I do want more cops in my neighborhood. I just want them better trained. I mean, this is a, this is a constant theme. And, and I would point to uh, the, the most startling drop in enthusiasm are a core group of voters who took Biden over the edge, both in the primaries and in this election, black voters. He had very strong support from them. His support has cratered with that group of voters who he uses in many cases as a kind of moral shield for positions that his administration pursues that in fact, the community he claims to be speaking for does not like. So I that cratering to me is a, it was the most, um, should be the most alarming signal for Democrats in general, because that is a group that tends to be has been very supportive of Biden um, and is not very public about, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus isn't out there giving press conferences, you know, lambasting moderates or, or attacking the Biden administration the way the progressive is, uh, caucus has, but they are not happy with this administration and the direction the country is going. And that's going to be felt by all Democrats at the ballot box in the midterms. They need to get back to their core message, abolish the gender binary. <laughs> that's what voters care about right now. I mean, anything can happen in the next. Okay, gotta, don't say gotta... that because he's going to change the Title IX regs soon. That to, to, <laughs> I know to cover exactly trans. It's, it's, it's just... just amazing to me that they just keep <laughs> stepping on the rake, and it's like they. I think they have to. They have to lose. Something has to happen. There has to be this wipeout for them to be able to say, "Okay, wait, listen, wait, we we've tried it now a few times. It's not working." Um, that was because they're not responding a, a... to stimuli. They're not responding to any of this other stuff. There's plenty of things that Biden could have done that would have consolidated his his polling. His polling numbers should be up like 10 points right now because he could use this moment, which is, I think, a global crisis to kind of rally the country. We don't have time for these kind of things before. I'm going to lead the way. I'm not going to you know, we're, we're going to have to put some of our old agenda. That would have been the smart thing to do. I'm not saying it would have saved in the midterms, but it would probably blunted that force a little bit and it would have really kind of shown something but they're not capable and, and so they, they were have to lose and they were banking on uh the the subsiding of covid to to give them a big boost right covid's now off the stage no one's crediting biden with that i mean you know the the, the administration is and and the, well they, they fundamentally misread that right i mean because right. there's so much anger that the schools were closed for so long and we had mask mandates for so long. Too little, too late. Yeah. And it's like too little, too late. So like they, they could have maybe had this moment if they would have like, you know, kind of played a little bit better with Delta and Omicron or whatever, but they didn't. And, you know, so there, here we are. That was articulated. Uh, was it today or yesterday where, when Biden publicly got an, a second booster and he literally muttered during the whole, you know, photo op. He's like, why am I doing this on stage? I'm like, <laughs> just articulated what the American yes. people are wondering. Uh, the transgender issue is actually quite interesting because there was this piece in the very big reported out pro sprawling profile with, you know, special art and interactive features in the Los Angeles Times talking about how it's a very scary time to be an LGBTQIA plus youth, um, in part because Republicans exist. Uh, you, it's very hard to be an LGBT. You're in the closet. You're underground. You're you're keeping to yourself because there are legislative efforts uh, in places like Florida and Texas specifically the uh, parents' choice bill, if you're on one side of it, the don't say gay bill on the other side of it in Florida and efforts, legislative efforts in Texas to age limit 
uh, hormone therapy for transitioning youth. Uh, this is an attack, according to the LA Times, on identity, on, uh, on gender identity, on uh, individual freedoms and liberty, and practically the 14th Amendment when you get into it. Um, I have I have some problems with the Florida law. I think it's bad law, badly written law. I think it's going to get challenges in court that may be successful because it's so vague about what its actual aims are. But it's popular in Florida. It's popular with Democrats in Florida because its aims are very narrow, as in it's an educational issue. And the it strikes just briefly. It strikes me that this is uh, an effort to gin up a cultural theme and get Democrats to harp on it to energize their unenthusiastic base. And it just strikes me as caravans 2.0, like very overthought, way too deep into the weeds, buying your own hype and missing how little resonance these issues actually have with the broader electorate. But do you, do you, do you think that, forget Democrats, do you think progressives understand that the transgender issue has moved so quickly in our culture that it's now a signal if you are using the vocabulary, the correct vocabulary, and you're aware of all these kinds of things, that actually it it signals your elite status, as opposed to that this is the most marginalized community. That was the case 10 years ago, that if you were a trans youth, and those people were among the most marginalized, and there are still, there is still that, but now it is this indicator that if, if this is something that you talk about, and you're open to, and it, it's one of your big issues, then that indicates that you are like as privileged as it gets. I don't think they understand that. And I think that the only thing that will get them to kind of back to reality is a, just a, a massive political wipeout. That's, well, and it, that's it, it, they left. don't speak to the other. The problem I have with it is that and this does. This is actually, uh, if you look at responses to polling, um, not just the the Florida bill, but my kids, for example, told me that one of my kids' high schools they're having a walkout to protest the Florida "Don't Say Gay" bill. So I sent him the text of the bill. I'm like, "Well, you do what you want, but here's the text of the bill." He goes, "It doesn't say gay." And I had not prepped him. I swear. I was like, "No, it's, you know." And they, you know, they did shift it so that it had originally said, I think, "discussion," and now the word, the phrasing is, "You can't do instruction in K through three. But the, but the broader point is, a lot of Americans think care deeply about compassion and fairness. Yes. And those two values are struggling right now if you in the trans debate because people feel both things. They see a, a man swimming against women, beating them time and time again, and they think that's unfair. They hear someone's story about how they really feel like they're a girl, but they're in a boy's body and they feel compassion. And there is a lot of tension in our public policy debate. In the, and, and I think it's reflected in the kinds of you know hastily uh, drawn up pieces of legislation that are coming through the pipeline, but the Democrats won't even allow that tension to exist. It's either you support everything we want to do here or you're a bigot. And I think a lot of people in the middle are like, I'm uncomfortable with the way that you're phrasing it. <laughs> it's a bit of a trap, right? Because the right. whole of popular culture has aligned against this bill. All, it, there's nobody in popular culture. You can't you can't walk outside without hearing people protesting this, saying gay, 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 just to be like, well, I'm opposed to this Florida bill. And then all a Republican has to do is point to the text of the legislation and say, well, we're just trying not to talk about sex to people who are under third grade. To which, at which point everybody in America, 75, 80% of America says, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound so bad. I have a third grader and I struggle to, I can't even figure out how to tell them the birds and the bees yet. Literally, I, me and my wife are struggling over this one. 
and it's sort of a hot potato we're passing back and forth because nobody really wants to break that that dam but third grade's coming up real soon and I guess it's time, but no one wants that to be thrust upon them, let alone for it to be introduced in schools for you to have to then, okay, you know, backfill some of this information that is invariably taught in a very narrow and crude way. So yeah, when you have the whole of popular culture coming out in one way on this thing with no alternative inputs. With the crisis narrative, with the crisis narrative. Right. And Everything's seeds, a crisis. Everything to, uh, to Republicans. It seeds the alternative uh, message on education to Republicans. And it's yet another education issue that Republicans can corner Democrats on. Did they not learn anything from last November? No, obviously they didn't learn anything from last November. You think they, I mean, they talk about it like they did. They talk about defund the police like they learned the lesson of that one in 2020. They talk about keeping the schools closed and excessive mitigation efforts that tar- target kids and only kids. They, they, they talk about it like they learned that last November. They haven't learned anything. And what makes you think they're well, going to learn anything police, from a shellacking they, this year? They, they, yes, you're right. On defund the police, that's, that's largely been dropped. And there's been a couple of reasons for that, not just the crime wave. I mean, part of it is also, you know, what we're seeing is the corruption of the national organization of Black Lives Matter and Patrice Colors. And there's a lot of things where you know, the activists are, are at this point in disarray on that, I think. Um, but on the transgender issue, you're right. I mean, we're caught between fairness and compassion. And that's why I, my hope is that Republicans, sensible moderates, conservatives can say, we don't have a problem with adults who, you know, we have compassion for people who, who, who feel that they need to transition. And this is a thing. And we're not saying they're invisible or marginalized, but you cannot create a world in which Every aspect of our culture is designed to make a very, very tiny sliver of the population feel more comfortable. And we cannot design our education around this idea that there are, you know, untold, you know, thousands or millions of people who would rather be a different gender when that just doesn't make any sense. So last issue, I'm going to close out the podcast. Does anybody have anything on the news? Because I don't. The news that the Justice Department is allegedly investigating Hunter Biden. Chinese energy company paid Hunter Biden and his uncle controlled his the the firm that controlled four point eight million dollars, basically confirmed by The Washington Post, not just from the laptop, but also from the laptop. The laptop is real. It's been 100 percent confirmed. Hunter's links to this guy named Patrick Ho, who was later convicted and sentenced. Both of them are on this one million dollar retainer that they received from China. No indication that Biden's involved, but Joe Biden's son, president of the United States, could be investigated and perhaps even indicted. By his own administration, um, it would be politically satisfying, certainly, but also, you know, an, a nice indication of the extent to which the rule of law hasn't been undermined so terribly in this country. And we're, you know, six degrees from a banana republic at this point. This this was one of those another example of why, first of all, Biden did do the right thing and not kind of I mean, he's he said, I'm staying out of it. The Justice Department has to do its job. Um, but this is another example of how the media actually, uh, ste- to use your metaphor from earlier, Eli, stepped on a rake that it didn't need to by trying to originally suppress all these stories. Right. If these, if all of these details had been vetted and discussed and reported on as thoroughly as they're doing now, I think it would be a, it would have not been an issue any longer. And and particularly since the, the debate at that time was, do you want Trump or do you want Biden? Um, because no, everyone can imagine a world where Trump would have, you know, actively involved himself in a Department of Justice investigation of one of his adult children to try to quash it or whatnot. So that said, 
Um, there's a lot of really kind of shocking stuff that could emerge from this investigation, including some stuff that will tarnish uh, Biden, maybe not Biden now, but Biden's vice presidency, because there is some clearly some potential overlap between his son's activities with some of these uh, lobbyists and, and foreign influencers and uh, and what he was had in his portfolio as vice president, particularly Ukraine. So that that's a concern. But I've been fascinated to watch the media suddenly, you know, doing all these um, machinations about uh, describing this story. CNN had a big report on the Washington Post, New York Times, all kind of trickling out, which suggests to me one of two possibilities. Uh, something big is a big indictment is going to come down. And so they want to get out ahead of it and make sure that they say, see, we've been covering this all along and try to memory hold the fact that they all suppressed this earlier. Or they're they're going to want to show that they did due diligence if the case is not made and there is no indictment. But I mean, I would lean right now if I had to guess that there's going to be at least some indictment here. I mean, his tax issues alone are, are a mess. And then there's the gun and there's I mean, there's just this guy's life is a mess. It's a mess. And there's a lot of, of potential legal uh, tripwires he's gone over in the last 10 years. Exit question for all of you. If Hunter Biden is indicted, it becomes a major campaign issue, not just 2022, but 2024, an effort to relitigate all the stuff that we didn't get to talk about in 2020 because of this artificial effort to shut down this debate over this laptop. How much does that help Trump? A little, a lot, or so much that he becomes the nominee? I, I would just, I think in general, it shows there's such a double standard in the justice system when it comes to Republicans and Democrats. I mean, Matt, we've, we've, we've now had one year of stories that Matt Gates might be a sex trafficker and he has yet to be indicted for anything. We know from the Trump years that any, you know, like telephone game, anonymous, you know, garbled whisper that suggested that somebody in Trump's inner circle was under some sort of investigation became crisis level 24 hour news, you know, flood the zone coverage. And yet when, you know, you have the, a lot of the goods on Hunter Biden in the middle of a, of a campaign like this, not only does the media go the other set way saying uh, totally falsely that it was Russian propaganda and, and Russian disinformation, but you have the social media companies preventing people from sharing, locking out the New York Post Twitter account and going out of their way to make sure that, you know, people don't see it, which has obviously kind of had, I think, a Streisand effect for anybody who isn't in the progressive bubble, but nonetheless, it's it's just amazing the kind of double standards in these newsrooms for covering the whiff of a potential kind of scandal or possible investigation into a Republican, which becomes treated as if that is all of the allegations are true and that's they 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 fix on the narrative within 12 hours, versus something like this where it takes you know what a like year and a half, right? I think I, I think it helps Trump a lot in another way, in that it hurts Biden's case that with me, you don't get all the stuff you hated about the other guy. Uh, one huge sticking point among people who couldn't stand Trump was they detested the involvement of his kids in the White House. They thought everyone was up to some, some double dealing, some, some funny business. There were questions about leaders staying in his, uh, in the, in his the hotels, whatever it is. Um, 
the Biden being entangled in some way, I have no idea to the to what extent I, I wouldn't predict it, but Biden being tarnished by this in some way, um, I think is, is a real blow to the sort of case he made for his, his universe of norms. Um, when, <coughs> simply Tony Fabrizio's former pollster for uh, Donald Trump sat there at a conference saying, look, you can't talk Donald Trump out of talking about 2020. He thinks this is really legitimate and he thinks it's really helpful for him. So he's not going to stop talking about it. Uh, in every sense, that is a detriment to his political prospects. But this one, because this is a live, real issue left over from 2020 that is unlitigated, hasn't been thoroughly adjudicated by the public uh, <clears throat> and, and hasn't you know, really touched on Biden yet. And so that just lends a little bit more credence to his efforts to go back in the record book and get 2020 straight. I will um, say, though, I will say a lot of Americans don't really like it when people attack president's children even adult children who are clearly, you know, struggling. I mean, look, he's admitted he's an addict and, you know, we should have sympathy for, for that challenge in his life, but he's also, you know, seemingly done a lot of horrible things, including to his, you know, spouses and ex-spouses and girlfriends. So not a great guy, but I do, I, I kind of think that it could backfire on Republicans um, and certainly on Trump, if he's harping on this, it's a character issue, right? If they want to make this about character and about the judgment of a father with his challenged son, it's the same thing that happened when they suppressed the story initially. People have a lot of sympathy. I mean, everybody's got someone in their family who's got problems. So there's a way in which, and Trump is not the guy to thread that empathy needle, as we know. So I could say it would help Republicans if we, there's an alternative to Trump who can say, look, this just shows you how the mainstream media is in bed with the Democrats and big tech. You know, that message I think resonates with people, but the, but the attacking the troubled child, eh, not so sure. I mean, I guess you can attack a not troubled child. By, I think I think by evidence of how much they heaped just opprobrium on uh, Ivanka Trump for just being there. Uh, Iv yeah, Ivanka Trump for just you know, being, quote, complicit, you know, that, well, I, that I, no I consequences say, for that one. The key, I mean, what Demo I, th I think the most effective way to sideline Trump, if you're Democrats, is you sort of have to make sure that it's a it's a clear contrast that the world's too dangerous. Our country has too many huge problems for the for all of the drama and shenanigans that you get with the Trump presidency, that's the argument that I think you, you kind of win a majority of Americans on. But if, if, if you have similar shenanigans going on with the Biden presidency, even if they're from when he was, you know, when he was out of power, uh, it's hard to make that contrast. True. True enough. With that, we're going to shut it down for the day. Eli, like, thank right. you very much for thank your you for time. We, we reached out to Eli last minute. Very last minute. And he was gracious enough and accommodating enough to jump on the podcast with us. Eli, we owe you a debt. Thank you, sir. Um, the rest of the gang will be back tomorrow. By the way, can I, can I make a quick plug? Well, of course. Please. Keep your eyes open next month for the launch of my podcast, The Reeducation uh, with Eli Lake on the Nebulous Podcast Network. It'll be early April. Uh, I expect the second week of April. So Excellent. keep your eye out for that on your on your feed. All You're having guests or... Uh, there will be monologues. guests there will be monologues there'll be fake ads it'll be a lot of fun can't wait i will be looking forward to that and i know okay. our listeners will too the gang will be back tomorrow including john so for the absent john Podhoritz, as well as abe greenwald christine rosen and eli lake i'm noah rothman keep the candle burning